One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. On the last episode of Guilt, who killed Jordan Vidori? Um, I got out of the van and walked to. They'd taped the end of the the end of the road off, and there he was. He was lying on the ground. You know, it's one, that's one of those things. You know, is it just a complete coincidence that happened? Yeah, a complete coincidence that you managed to get into a gate that is usually padlocked twice. Actually, I think it might have been three times. I know it was definitely twice without being seen. At 1.30am, exactly 10 years ago, on June 18th, 2012, Jordan Vidori shut down his computer after spending the night in his usual way, browsing his much-loved website TradeMe, where he would hunt for bargains for himself, family and friends. Sometime after this, he made his way downstairs, outside to the large gate behind his pizza restaurant Mykonos. Here, he encountered some people, and an altercation took place, resulting in Jordan receiving cuts to his arms, a broken nose, and a fatal gunshot to his chest. Jordan's cowardly murderers fled the scene and left Jordan to die on that dark, cold morning. To this day, Jordan's killers have never been found. The timing of the release of this episode is not by accident. While it's not a milestone to celebrate, I believe it highlights the fact that even all these years later, Jordan has never received the justice he deserved, and his family have never been given the most important piece of closure. Why? If you're listening to this episode on the day of its release, we'll be celebrating Jordan's life with a shot of Uzo at his memorial in Paidoa. Wherever you are today, raise a toast for him. And with that, I'd like to take a brief moment of silence now to show our respect for a life taken too soon. Thank you. There's a huge amount to cover in this, the final episode of this first season of Guilt, so I don't want to waffle on too long with thank yous, but again, I'd like to take a moment to thank you all for sticking with me and this story. The podcast currently has a five-star rating across all platforms and grows every day, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, here it is, 
the episode you've all been waiting for, the final episode. Let's get into it. Before we get into the guts of this episode, I need to readdress an important aspect of episode 9, Timelines. If you'll recall in that episode, I spoke to Bruce Jacks, who said he was living in the funeral home at the time, and said he doesn't recall hearing a gunshot. Well, since the release of that episode, I've been contacted by Glenn Rogers, who I spoke to in episode 2. He was the one that gave me the original name of Stephen Roberts as the one living in the home. However, when a new source came forward, who claimed that Bruce Jacks was actually the one living in the funeral home at the time, and then Bruce himself corroborated this, I took that for what it was. And it turns out, that was an oversight on my part. On our recent call, Glenn made it very clear that no, he wasn't mistaken. Stephen Roberts is a real person, and he was the one living in the home at the time. This time, he was able to provide me with two funeral notices dated March 12, signed by Stephen, which do appear to show that he was in fact living in the home at the time. But, unfortunately, despite every possible effort, neither Glenn nor myself have been able to locate Stephen. So round in circles we go. Records show that Bruce had in fact started a new business only a few months before Jordan's death, and the registered address was a nearby street. So his memory of walking out that morning and seeing the commotion is accurate, but the location is not. I think you've answered my question. <laughs> um, it was around about then that I started the new, um, the new business. Yeah, so it must have been just just before. Yeah, it must have been. Um, remember I said to you I couldn't remember being interviewed by the police? And yeah. That I couldn't remember hearing any shots, or if I had heard shots, I'd have been out having a look around. Yeah. Well, obviously, I was not at that address. Yeah. I'm sorry about that, mate. I've bloody stuffed you around there a bit. So how does this new information fit in with the timeline? I'm going to reinstate the 2am report of the witnesses at the funeral home having possibly heard a shot. However, it appears there is still some confusion over the witnesses unless both Sierra and Stephen Roberts in the funeral home were up at around 2am watching a film. But until I can find Stephen, it will remain a mystery. We've come a long way since episode 1 and covered a huge amount of ground over many, many hours. So for this final episode, I think it's important to briefly revisit all the known facts of the case and theories we've covered. Some we've eliminated, and some still have a question mark. At the end of this episode, I'm going to present my theory as to what took place that night. And I want all the facts to be fresh on your mind, so you can make your own decision as to what you think may have happened that night. Sunday, June 17th, 2012. The day had proceeded much like any other normal day. Jordan had been working at his restaurant Mykonos. I spoke with two key employees, being Tatiana and Gareth, who both worked that day. And while Gareth couldn't specifically recall the day, Tatiana stated that it was just a normal night. Tatiana ended her shift in the evening at about 9 o'clock and headed home. Gareth stayed on for a short time and had a couple birthday beers with Jordan before himself heading home. Both Jordan and Gareth had their respective birthdays in the coming few days. After speaking to Gareth, 
I was able to dismiss the rumour that Gareth was allegedly fired that night. While there's no doubt that Jordan and Gareth likely had some heated arguments during the course of work, after speaking to Gareth's flatmate Paul, I was able to eliminate Gareth as being involved in Jordan's murder. From this point of Gareth leaving work to the point of Jordan's discovery, there is very little information. The last person to apparently see Jordan alive was a baker making a delivery at 10.30pm. Both myself and those who knew Mykonos well were stumped by this, due to the fact they didn't use a baker. However, I've since been contacted by a source who believes this person may have been someone making a delivery down the street at a different location, and may have seen Jordan out the front of his shop at this time, which could explain the confusion over the baker. From here we know that Jordan spent the evening and the early hours on his computer upstairs browsing TradeMe. At some point, he made himself something to eat and then shut down his computer just before 1.30am. It was around this time that Sierra, who was up waiting for a movie, claims she heard shouting between Jordan and someone else. The night Jordan died, I was sitting in bed waiting for a movie at 1.20 specifically. 1.15, there was a hell of a noise out the back of my building. There was a man and a woman fighting. It was, the, the fight only lasted 40 seconds. There was three pieces of conversation. And then everything went quiet. They were two foreign voices. Yeah. One was specifically Jordan's Greek accent, and the other one was a specifically island accent. Sierra doesn't have a phone and I'm yet to be able to track her down for a follow-up interview. But we have shown that Blade wasn't playing that night. But that doesn't mean this incident didn't take place, although it certainly adds a cloud of uncertainty. Sierra claimed the woman's voice that night was a local security guard by the name of Sophia. I've tried to find Sophia, but have yet to find a person that had heard of any security guard by that name operating in Paidoa. Could it be that Sierra did hear arguing, but that the voice she heard wasn't a security guard, but someone else with a similar sounding voice? The next key moment is the people in the funeral home apparently hearing a gunshot around 2am based on a movie they were watching. As I've previously mentioned, it seems unlikely that both Sierra and these people were up watching a movie at the same time. I'm sure there's been some confusion over these witnesses, but nonetheless... Given Bruce Jack's retraction of being the one in the home that night, let's say Stephen Roberts was up and awake at that time and did hear what could have been a shot around 2am. Now, we move on to what for many of you is likely the most difficult part of this story to swallow. The discovery of Jordan's body and the two-hour time delay. As you'll recall in episode 3, Hail Mary, we spoke to Linda Hunter, or Rusty, and she explained that this delay was simply due to her feeling guilty at the time about Barry's presence given her recent separation with Richard or Dick. After my initial interview with Linda, I believed her. She sounded genuine. But there was something about it that just still didn't quite sit right with me. So I decided to get back in touch with Linda, and this time, be a little more direct. I, that's yeah. a bit after I spoke to you last time that I was sort of trying to finding it hard to understand the, the two hours that it took before you called someone. Well, I was in a situation, yeah, well, Barry would have left about 4.30 or something like that, but I was in a situation, oh, what do I do? Uh, Barry stayed here the night, blah, 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 blah. And Dick and I were separating, 
and I just felt so guilty because I'm such a good, you know, (laughs) and I was in a situation and I thought, what do I do? What do I do, you know? Yeah. And and because I said to Barry when he first told me, Ring the cops, you and he said, No, no, I've got to get to work. I'm late. So I found out he, like Dick said, you know, he said he, yeah, he said he should never have left you in that situation. You were too scared to really go out there and check because he said you could have gone out there straight away and you could have been a witness and they would have shot you too. And I said, Well, I didn't think of all that stuff, Mm. yeah. I mean, you know? I, yeah. I mean, it had me. He's an yeah. so he told me that. He said, you, you know, he said, if you had it gone out there, he said, they could hanging around or whoever it was, you know? So, so you would say, hand on heart, because it crossed my mind. I thought maybe Linda did see something happen and she was too scared to say anything. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been. If I, I had heard anything or heard any arguing or anything like that, I used if I heard him arguing with the chef or his missus, I would go inside, you know. Or, but if I heard something that sounded like he was in trouble, I know me, I would have gone out there and said, "Are you all right?" Yeah. And that's what Dick said. You, then you probably would have got pinged, you know. Mm. He said, "Good thing you didn't hear anything." I said, "I didn't." I had the stereo on. We was sitting up talking, looking at photo albums, and yeah. And and because it's soundproof, you don't even hear cars from my flat then. So so that two hours then, you'd say hand on heart, it's just because you felt guilty at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I just I, it made me think, because I've sort of heard that there could be some pretty bad people involved, and I thought, well, maybe Linda saw something or knew that there was no, gang, if- gang people involved, and she was like, fuck, I don't want to say anything here because they'll come after me. And so that's yeah. what I thought. No, Maybe no. she gave them time to get away or something. No, I never saw a thing. I never heard anything yeah. because my place is soundproof. Mm. And if and if Barry hadn't have stayed that night, I wouldn't have even have known. I mean, someone else would have found him, and I would have still been asleep. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 It's somewhat ironic that the title of this podcast, Guilt turns out to be a central theme and one of the most important elements of the case. It was Linda's guilt that caused her to delay calling the police. I guess for most of you listening, and myself, not calling the police the moment you know there's a dead body on your property is something we just can't reconcile. But in situations like this, it's hard for us to judge how someone else reacts based on how we believe we might, without having ever been in the situation ourselves. I've spent a fair bit of time talking to Linda now, and for me, it's enough. I don't believe she knows or heard anything. She hasn't hidden anything from me and returned my calls when I asked. That doesn't sound like a person trying to conceal something. During the second call, Linda told me that someone had been in touch with her, saying that people making this podcast had spoken to them as to whether Linda was into drugs. And it's true. I had asked that question. So he got in contact with me and said that you guys got in contact with him and asked him if I was into drugs. I hate drugs. I don't even do drugs. I know lots of people that do, and they're not murderers. Yeah. And I said, why does everyone think I'm a druggie? 
Because I wear my hair, you know, I used to mm. tease my hair up and I used to like leopard tights and and stuff like that. And I got a nickname yeah. as Tina Turner when I lived in Waihee. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's what someone said to me. An old guy said, it doesn't matter. You could wear this, this house, but it will always look better on you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. people assumed, you know, and... I'm a real old-fashioned person. I like my home life. I like peace and quiet because I didn't have a very good childhood. Mm. And I just, no, no stress. I love seeing people happy. Yeah. I love my animals mm. and my gardens. And I just hate when people judge people because everyone's got a, a story. And I hate it that they judge me because people don't know me, you know, like my girlfriend Diane, she said, people just don't know you. They take you wrong. I included this segment because I wanted to put these rumours to bed. While this is just Linda's word, I'll leave you to decide. But I know what I think. Linda's just a bit quirky and perhaps doesn't fit with what people might consider normal. And good on her. We need more people like her in the world. There were really two reasons I wanted to speak to Linda a second time. One was to readdress the two-hour time delay, and the other was to do with a comment she made in the first interview relating to Jordan's gate. Here's what she said in the first interview. And we'd, we saw Jordan that afternoon because he was sorting out rubbish in his backyard, and my cousin was looking at a leak on my roof and said he could have a go at fixing it. And then I just yelled out, G'day, pizza man, this is my cousin, and he just waved. He was busy here at his gate shut, actually and behind his property. To refresh your memory, there were two gates at the back of Mykonos Pizza. One was a large gate, out round the corner at the road entrance. This is the gate where Jordan was eventually found. This gate was large and prevented access to the rear courtyard area where a few cars were parked, and where both Linda and Jordan would access the rear of their buildings. But there was also a second gate. This was right round in behind Mykonos, and when closed, it completely blocked the entrance to the restaurant from the rear. If Linda says this gate was closed earlier in the day, this would be a key piece of information. And, um, there's one thing in particular I wanted to ask you about, and that was um, um, you said when I first spoke to you that um, you saw Jordan out the back that afternoon. Um, yeah. He was cleaning up rubbish or something out the back? Yeah, it looked like he was sorting out rubbish. Yeah, can you remember... Just explain that bit again to me, because you said about a gate, and I didn't notice at the time. But oh, I noticed his gate was um, shut and behind his shop, and I thought, well, I've never, you know, you don't really take much notice, but it was the first time I've ever seen that shut. Oh, okay. And when you, when you, because he had the, there was the two gates, eh? There was the one out at the road. The, there's the main one on the road, because... I always go to lock that if I'm ever staying in the flat. But, yeah. but he always says to me, oh, worry about it. It's all right. Leave it open. He said, right, you know, I know I know people around here. It's all safe because yeah. I've always been good security and lock the gates because I've got shops there too. And he always said whenever he said, I always know when you're staying. So, you know, because he sees my vehicle there. And, um and he always says, oh, don't worry about the gate. It's all right, Rusty. What, who had a key for that back gate? <sighs> well, he would have had one and I would have had one. Yeah. So just yeah. just you guys. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so that morning, so that gate that you're talking about, that was the one just past his end of his freezers there. Yeah, in the back of his, behind his shop, he's, he had a big gate. Yeah, because did he get that yeah. gate put in there, or was that always No, there? I think that was already there. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you just From the last owners. I see, but you just specifically remember that that night it was closed. That afternoon, because I was out there showing my cousin about he was going to come and fix my roof. I said I had a leak and to seal it. And when we were out the back talking and I was showing him the ridge from the back section, that's when I saw Jordan out there doing rubbish. And I just said, G'day, pizza man, because that's what I called him, because I couldn't even remember his name, but I know it now. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when I thought, oh, that's strange, he's... Why has he got the gate shut and he's sorting out rubbish? And then I just didn't think anything of it, you know? Mm. What what kind? Because it was middle of winter, so, I mean, it must have been not that late. No, it was probably about, oh, two or three in the afternoon, something like that. I don't know. According to Linda, she'd never seen Jordan close this gate before. So why did he have it closed on this particular day, the afternoon slash night of his murder? Is this just a coincidence or had something or someone given Jordan a reason to keep it closed? So that morning when Barry left, you said he went out the back. Um, I guess so normally Jordan would leave that gate open so he could just walk straight out there. Yeah, well, he had his car parked in the back. Oh, okay. So he, he would, did he have a key to get out? No, because the gate was left open because Jordan always said, don't worry about the gate whenever okay. you stay. So, it was so otherwise, I would have had the gate locked, but the gate was open. Although Barry may not be directly responsible for Jordan's death, in a somewhat tragic twist, his presence that night did play a key role in what was to take place. Had Barry not been there, it's likely the large back gate would have been kept closed and padlocked, preventing those responsible for Jordan's death entering the property. I continue to run through the events of that night with Linda, gently probing, to see if any new piece of information might come loose. And when I mentioned the keys for the gate being found in the scene, she does mention something which piques my interest. I had always assumed that both the inside gate and the outside gate were padlocked, which would mean if the gate had been closed and padlocked in the afternoon, Jordan would have had to physically open the padlock that morning to go out into the back area where he would eventually be shot, which would certainly imply that Jordan may have known or trusted this person. But Linda remembers otherwise. He, he shuts his computer down at 1.30. Yeah. And he's found, obviously, out at that back gate. The keys for the gate, I assume, the, the, the gate that's in close to his place, they're found. No, he, he never had a key on there. Oh, so what, what did that have on there? That just had a hook. And... And, and I can't remember a padlock ever been on there, unless he had one on there, but oh. it was open the morning when I went in there looking for him to say there was someone at the gate. Okay. So That's just, there was a post there under the grapevine and it just hooked into it. Oh, uh, okay. But it's also possible there may have been a padlock there, but you just hadn't seen it. Not that I know of, yeah. Okay. So the, the, the one that actually did get locked, locked, was the big gate at the back. Linda's adamant that there was never a padlock on this inside gate. But I have to accept it's also possible that perhaps she hadn't seen it. Unfortunately, Tatiana doesn't recall if there was or wasn't. I've asked Gareth, and he said he doesn't recall there ever being a lock on this inside gate, and also added he'd never seen the gate closed. 
On the 2020 TVNZ show Cold Case, we can elicit some possible information. We do see images of this inside gate, and it does clearly have a hook-style latch. So this ties in with what Linda remembers. They also show a picture of the keys found in the scene. Two padlock keys are on one ring. So are these keys for the inside and outside gate? I'm no lock expert, but looking at the key patterns, they appear to be for the same lock. It's likely Jordan never separated them. You're probably wondering why I'm putting so much emphasis on this inside gate being locked. Or maybe you've already figured this part out. Let's think about these two possible options for a moment. The first being that this gate was closed, but not locked, with only the hook latch, like the type you see on a typical farm gate, keeping the gate closed. The type of hook latch on the gate is actually not the type of latch that can be locked with a padlock. If this gate was locked, it appears the only way to do this would have been with a separate chain and padlock. This would mean it would have been possible for someone to access the back area of Mykonos that morning. Did Jordan hear someone opening this gate from upstairs and catch them in the act? Then proceed downstairs with keys to lock the roadside gate, and while on his way to the outside gate, the confrontation occurred, resulting in Jordan dropping this set of keys? The second option. Let's say Jordan did have a chain and padlock on this inside gate. If it were indeed closed, as Linda stated, then when Jordan came downstairs, he would have had to specifically unlock this gate before proceeding into the courtyard area. So why would Jordan do this? If the inside gate was locked, access to his freezers and the back of his store wasn't possible. We know that Linda said to Jordan specifically to leave the back gate open when she was staying. And Barry was also there, so he could only have been going back to lock the gate if he felt the need to do so. We know that Jordan was fiery and wouldn't back down, but surely he would not have unlocked this inside gate if he saw someone with a gun. So is it possible Jordan could have known the person or people, and this is why he opened the gate? There is another simple reason why Jordan may have decided to lock the bat gate at this time. Unless he's heard something. Mm. He might have heard something and thought someone was tampering with Barry's car or my car. Because usually we don't have anyone staying out there, you know what I mean? It's usually just my van's parked in the garage, but Barry parked his car in there too. So he might have heard a noise, gone out to check to make sure, because that's the sort of guy he'd be, mm. going out to see if no one's tampering with the cars. Yeah, because Barry had quite a nice car or something you said, eh? Yeah, yeah, he had a nice um, Holden, you know, V8, yeah. But I I think it had an alarm on it, I'm not sure. Did Jordan hear something? Make his way downstairs and decide to lock the back gate to protect the vehicles there that night? There are a lot of ifs and maybes here, but I feel this small piece of the puzzle is key to helping understand Jordan's frame of mind at this moment. And if we examine this in detail will help give us a clearer understanding of what may have taken place. But let's park this for now. I'm going to revisit it later. Linda and I keep chatting for a while. We speak about Dick, and I mention how great it would have been to have spoken to him before we say our goodbyes. You don't remember him ever specifically saying, like, shit, I think it could be this, or... No, not that I can remember back. Because mm. it's been two years since he's passed, and I only... And I keep thinking, is it a year ago or two years? Because I sort of lost a year. 
Yeah. Yeah. Shit, I wish he was yeah. still alive. I would have loved to talk to him. Yeah, I wish he was too. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I know, sorry. That's a bit yeah, and for you. to say that. Yeah. 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 But, um, of course, we all wish he was oh, alive. Oh, yes, and he would have been happy to talk to you mm. and told you whatever he was thinking, you know, or thought or whatever. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well. Yeah. Okay, well, um, Hey, thank you very much, Linda. I appreciate you giving me a call back. Um, it's all right. Yeah, if I, if anything comes of it, I'll give you a yell and let you know. Okay, dokie. But um, yeah, you look after yourself. You too, Ryan. Oh, okay, thanks, Linda. Okay, cheers. Bye bye. You too. Okay, let's tick off the two-hour time delay and move on. The answer we're looking for doesn't lie. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I hear. If you'll recall in episode four, Operation Olive, I had made a request under the Official Information Act for any information related to the armed robberies of the Waihi Mobile Station and the Caddy Caddy Park Road Dairy that morning. A couple months ago, I received a call from the New Zealand Police, and they were more than happy to oblige. As such, I was sent two case summary reports in relation to these offences, those involved, and the details of the cases. Let's go back over the whole timeline of events from that morning, as stated in the official police case report. As in episode 4, I'll be redacting the names of these offenders. On Sunday, June 17, 2012, the defendant, his brothers, and along with their cousin were in Caddy Caddy. While there, the defendant spoke to one of their associates, who lives in Caddy Caddy, and stated, So yeah bro, we're going to make some money tonight. We're going to roll the gas station in Waihi. The other defendants agreed and stated, Yeah bro, yeah. The defendants travelled to Waihi on the evening of Sunday, June 17, 2012, and visited associates. While at an address in Waihi, the defendants discussed committing a robbery at the mobile service station in Waihi. The defendants were observed handling a black pistol and to be cutting eye holes out of a black balaclava. At about 6am on Monday 18th of June 2012, the defendants went to the mobile service station in Seddon Street, Waihi. 
They advanced upon the lone female attendant who was checking the fuel levels in the forecourt. At this time, they were disguised with hoodie jumpers, gloves and full-face balaclavas. One of the offenders produced a pistol and pointed it directly at the attendant and demanded that she enter the shop. Once inside the shop, one of the defendants stated that they wanted the cash and knew that the attendant had cash. When the attendant opened the cash register and showed that it was empty as the store was only just opening, one of the defendants stated to her that they wanted some cigarettes. The attendant showed the defendants that the cigarettes were locked away and she had no key for the cabinet. A defendant then kicked the attendant in the stomach, causing her to double over. The actions of the defendants were captured on the in-store CCTV system. The defendants left the store without stealing any items and travelled together in their vehicle to Caddy Caddy. About 6.22am on the same date, three of the defendants entered the Park Road Dairy in Caddy Caddy while the others waited nearby. At this time, one defendant was in possession of a pistol and one with a builder's claw hammer. Again, both defendants were disguised with full-face balaclavas, hoodie jumpers and gloves. The defendants entered the store and as the male shop owner was coming out the back of the room, one defendant pointed the pistol at him and demanded cash and cigarettes. The shop owner dropped the pies he was holding and ran into a side room, closing the door behind him. The defendants left the store without stealing any items. The defendants all returned to a relative's address in Caddy Caddy, where they were observed in a close group huddled on the back porch talking in secret. A short time later, a relative observed one of the defendants drop a black pistol from his pocket onto the deck. When the relative picked it up, he believed it was made of plastic. The defendant quickly took the pistol from the relative. Later that afternoon, the group of offenders was observed burning a balaclava in the backyard. One of the defendants was asked by a relative whether he was involved in the robberies. The defendant stated, Yeah bro, we rolled the dairy. There was an Indian guy in the dairy. It was early in the morning and he was moving pies and that's when we rolled him. The Indian started screaming and chucked pies at us. We started running out. The defendant then laughed about his actions. When asked about the Waihee robbery, the defendant replied, Yeah bro, there was a lady that was working. We were waiting around the corner. I think she heard us, so we just rolled in and robbed her. On Wednesday 18th July 2012, police executed a warrant at an address in Waimana. Police searched the addresses, which consisted of two house buses. In the second house bus, police located a Mossberg pump-action shotgun underneath a mattress. On Friday 22nd June 2012, a defendant was spoken to by police. He denied any involvement in the robberies and stated he was in Rotorua on both Sunday 17th of June and Monday 18th of June 2012. On Monday 25th of June 2012, another defendant was spoken to by police. He initially advised that he had been in Mangakino at the time of these robberies. He subsequently advised that he had been one of the three offenders involved in the robbery of the mobile service station in Waihee. He refused to talk about the identity of his co-offenders. In explanation for involving himself in these robberies, the defendant advised that he had done it for the money in order to stop him from doing crime, and that he was expecting to obtain $40,000 as proceeds from the robbery of the mobile service station. On Wednesday 18th of July 2012, another defendant was spoken to by police and denied being in Waihee and Caddy Caddy at the time of the robberies, despite being identified by a large number of witnesses that knew him personally. The defendant admitted that the Mossberg shotgun was his, and then he got it from friends and had wrapped it in a sheet and hid it under a mattress. 
the defendant stated that he used the shotgun for hunting. As far as the police are concerned, these are the full timeline of events for the armed robberies that morning. Let's take a look again in light of what we've heard in this report. As I mentioned in episode 4, the offenders were not spoken to quickly, and as we can see from the dates of their interviews being 22nd of June, 25th of June and 18th of July, many weeks had passed since the morning of June 18th and Jordan's murder. Ample time to get rid of a weapon or weapons. The case report doesn't specifically mention any weapons located other than the Mossberg shotgun, which was destroyed. From what I can see in the report, neither the hammer nor the pistol was ever recovered. The only apparent evidence as to the pistol being imitation was a relative picking it up and thinking it may have been plastic. Now this may be the case, it may have been plastic, but I think it would also be a fair assertion to say that a relative to an offender may say this in an attempt to help the offender mitigate any potential sentence. The fact that one of the offenders was found to have a shotgun wrapped and hidden under his mattress demonstrates that these men did have access to real firearms and seemed to have a reason to want to hide them. One thing in the case report, which I found quite bizarre, is one of the offender's statements that he hoped to procure 40,000 cash from the mobile station. Personally, I found this quite odd. I've never worked in a gas station, but I couldn't imagine they'd carry more than a couple thousand in cash at any time. And I'm hard-pressed to think anyone could honestly think this is the case. And this leads me to the other thing I find very odd about these robberies, is that they weren't really robberies at all. Nothing was stolen, and no real attempt was actually made to steal anything. No attempt to break into a till, smash a cabinet, steal cigarettes, nothing. If that was your only purpose that morning, why not even try? At the Caddy Caddy Dairy, the owner simply threw a couple pies and hid in a room. If I'm a robber, perfect. Easy access to the till. But no, they run immediately. Why? Perhaps they were just looking for an adrenaline rush that morning. Or did these hold-ups perhaps serve another purpose? I'm speculating here, and I want to add that none of these men have ever been charged with anything to do with Jordan's death. But due to the odd nature of the crimes, and the close proximity in time, I think this speculation is duly warranted. We now know about as much as we're ever going to know about these robberies, unless I can speak to the men involved personally. And if they're listening and would like to chat, feel free to email me at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com and we can arrange a time for a call. Sometimes, to help provide some clarity, I try to imagine what a top crime investigator would think if they were shown this case with no previous knowledge. A complete blank slate. Let's say Jordan's case landed on the desk of a crack FBI agent. What would be the first things they'd immediately hone in on? I think there would be two primary areas of interest. First would be the two-hour time delay. We've covered this. The second would be the thing that stuck out to me initially when I started investigating this case. Who was robbing Jordan's freezers? A few weeks ago, an existing source got in touch saying there was someone that really wanted to speak to me, that believed he may have some information that could be important to Jordan's case. His name is Andy. He runs a window cleaning business, and at the time of Jordan's death, Jordan was a client. I haven't met Andy in person yet, 
as he's constantly on the move due to his business. But he's a gruff, no-nonsense type character. And he has a very specific memory of a moment only days before Jordan's death that, though small, could be the key to Jordan's case. I've got it recording now, so... Okay. So what happened was, I was in Thames, just about to fall asleep, and my mate texts me and says, um, some guy got murdered behind the pizza thing. And, and I turned around and said to him, oh, it was probably, hopefully it was one of the scummy guys in town because there's a bit of scum running around. And then I hung up, and then I found, and no, he turned around and says, no, it was the pizza guy. So I was working in Thames at the time. And so I dropped everything. Because he, he, we did have an argument two weeks previous or a week previous before it. Okay. And, but he, 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 was, he was my mate, you know. Who, Jordan? Um, we got Jordan? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like we, we had a bit of an argument. Um, and, and it was over about three weeks before he got murdered. I turned around and said to him, Mate, you got to watch out because what happens at the end of the day, I'm pretty tired. And to get to him, he doesn't open until five. And my bucket of water is really dirty. And so when I get there, it's like, Buck, I've got to change my water just to clean his windows. I can sort of remember this quite clearly. I had to go like I did. It was the end of the day. The only tap in that area is around the back of the shop. So I had to walk around the back street, down to the back of his alleyway, to go to the back of the shop to get water. And it's something like half past four, quarter of five. So I, I go to get water from him because I might catch him up the back. But this day, I walk around the corner of the alleyway. Here's this well-dressed Mouldy boy. He took one look at me and sort of wanted to stop what he was doing and walked, but he had to walk past me to get away. So he walked past me so close, he sort of just about had to brush my shoulder. And then, so I'm walking past him with my bucket in my hand, and that's why I just about brushed my shoulder, and then I thought, hang on, that didn't look right and then I eventually get to the back of Jordan's shop and I remember first thing I saw on the chest freezer was a knife a hammer other tools bits and pieces and then I looked to the left and on the ground how people had had the axe leaning up against the wall to the left and then I thought well this doesn't look right when he's got dodgy flowers hanging outside the bit with all this, like, what would you call it, weaponry. So I fill the bucket of water, go back around to the front of the shop. It's like quarter to five by then. I start cleaning the windows. He shows up, sees me, comes to say day. How's it going? I said, John, mate, you, you better be careful. You know, I went and got my water around the back and you got knives, axes and all this other shit lying around. you got to watch out, mate. He turned around and says, oh, no, I've got respect in this town. I feed all the street kids. I look after everyone. And I said to him, no, mate, it's not like that. Anything can happen. 
And I think I think we had our I'm not too sure about our argument. I don't know if it was then or a month before then. But yeah, that was about it. But our our, our argument was quite big. And then, because I was doing them every two weeks, I went back to him and I said to him, and he said to me, oh, I'm over it, mate. It was just an argument. Men argue. And it was back to square one. Um, You know what I mean? Most men that argue usually walk away and have a grudge. Mm. But I liked the guy that much. I went back and said, oh, come on, mate. Yeah, get over it. You know, hey. And he was, yeah, sweetheart, Andy. Yeah. So, yeah. But, Yeah. yeah, so I walked. Walked up the back, and yeah, there was a lot of weaponry lying around. This isn't the first time I've heard that Jordan used to say he had nothing to worry about, that people respected him and would never do anything. But this is the first time anyone has ever said anything about actually seeing someone behind Jordan's shop that apparently shouldn't have been there. We've already spoken about Jordan's tools out the back with both Tatiana and Gareth, but Andy puts it in a different light when he describes the tools as weaponry. And he's not wrong. Knives, an axe, a hammer, are not the type of things you want in someone's hands that mean to cause you harm. I mean, if someone showed up, there's plenty of stuff to grab if you were going to hurt someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was trying to explain to him. Especially after he said, because, you know, you never know what these scummy, thievy guys are going to do in the dark. And, And it's like that guy had to sort of brush past me or come close, quite close to get away from the back, out of the back alleyway. You understand what I mean? Yeah, t- I mean, I know what you mean. Yeah, you sort of got to brush right by yeah, you. Yeah. I ask Andy to try and describe what he remembers of this man. So if you're a scumbag cornered rat, they do anything. Mm. If you, you know, uh, I know I it's been a while. If you could describe, like, roughly, like, when you say, like, sort of nice dressed, like... How old was he? How old was he and stuff, would you say? Well, at a first glimpse, because I'm, I'm a busy man, my man's, my mind's elsewhere, I'm tired, yep. um, I'm pretty, and the only way I can explain him is, I, I, when he walked past me, I thought, oh, that's all right, that's his worker, because he looked the same age, the same hair, the, the same haircut, um... What kind Looked of hair? Very, very similar to his worker he had that was training to become a boxer. Very clean cut, uh, well brought up, um, very impressive young. Yeah. So I thought, oh, oh, that's him. And then, and then for sweet, but then I started filling up my bucket of water, and I'm sitting there thinking, and I'm looking at all the weapons, and then I thought, well, hang on, if that was his worker. He would have said, G'day, Andy, how's it going? I'm just going around the front. So, um, yeah, he just looked like his worker. And then I thought, well, hang on, that wasn't his worker. I've confirmed that Jordan did have a young Māori staff member training to be a boxer around this time. But Andy is positive it was not him. And how old would you say he was, roughly? 22, 21. Yep. But no way I think it's him. Yeah, yeah, um, you're just saying just you thought it. Like yeah, him. yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah it, it, that's why I thought it was him, and then I thought, no, well, hang on. When I started filling up my bucket of water, I started thinking, well, if it was him, he's already met me five times, ten, five, ten times. He would have 
When you went and that's in, when I saw the knives and the hammer and the mm. bloody thing, and I thought, "Well, hey, this ain't right either." When you went in and saw Jordan, like straight after that, did he? Did you say to him, "Hey, who was that guy?" Or like, did you get? Yeah, the, yeah I said, uh, oh, "I said, to him, mate, I, I, I come pull up my bucket of water, and this guy sort of, I didn't catch him in the act, but he took one look at me and and brushed past me." And that's when Jordan just brushed it off and goes, oh, yeah, they've been stealing out of my freezer. And I says, well, you got to watch out. And he goes, oh, um, don't worry about me. I've got respect. Why was this young man in his early 20s in the back behind Jordan's shop? As you'll no doubt be aware, you don't just stumble into this area. To access it, you need to walk all the way around behind a neighbouring building. It's not visible from the road, So then how would a young man find himself in the back? Perhaps the answer to this question could lie back in our interview with Gareth, when he mentioned what he considered to be a shady deal, when he saw Jordan buy what he believed were undersized snapper off some young Māori men. I got back in touch with Gareth and asked him about this and the freezers getting robbed. Yeah, I spoke to Jordan a few times about after that fish deal. Because, uh, yeah, just did the deal with some young fellas out the back of the place. I was watching them, they just looked shifty. And then only maybe a, a week or two after that fish deal, the freezers got robbed. And I said to Jordan, that was just really shifty. You do that shady deal, the freezers get robbed. And he kept on saying, oh, they wouldn't do that to me. They love me around here, I trust them. But then, yeah... That's just basically what happened. Then not long after that, he's murdered too. Yeah, he just refused to put locks on those freezers on anything because he just felt he trusted all the people there and they wouldn't rip them off. Is it possible that in the course of Jordan buying fish off these men, he also introduced them to this back area and two freezers full of meat? Did Andy walk in on one of these men or their acquaintances, scoping them out to see whether they were full and if perhaps locks had been added. Uh, he may have just been popping around to see, oh, has he got locks on there at the moment? You know, he could have been scoping it out. Yeah, well, that's, it definitely was. Yeah. Uh, now that you say, yeah, that's what he was. That's what I'm trying to tell you, he was. Yeah. But then he saw me walk around the corner with the bucket mm. and thought, well, I've got to go, get out of here. That's why, you know what I mean? I come walking around the corner with the bucket. It must have been about half past four or something. But sometimes I, I used to go around, even though Jordan didn't open until five or quarter of five, I, I would go out and start doing the outsides or something until he got there. Um, even when my memory was fresh back then, I didn't see that boy, that fellow again in town. Did you keep doing the windows after Jordan died for that? Oh, after he died, I'd done them a couple of times, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Just out of respect, you know? Mm. Yeah. Until until it changed hands. Andy goes on to describe this man as young, approximately 20 years old, looking clean, tidy, dressed well, and tattooless, from what he could see. So who was he, and what was he doing there, in the exact location where Jordan would be murdered a week later? Now, just when you think you've got this case sewn up, I want to revisit an extremely important part of this investigation, and possibly the third thing 
our FBI agent would be looking into. And this is the man that walked into Arkwright Antiques on a rainy day four years ago and told Viv Leonard that he knew who killed Jordan. Let's go back to that conversation. Oh, actually, another thing that happened, which along the way, like about six years after Jordan was killed, um, the paper, local paper, come and they said, you know, we're going to do a follow-up on Jordan, do you want... And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll help. I, you know, I'll do anything I can to help catch who ever killed him. Anyway, they did a big story and a big picture this big on the front page of me. And then and someone said, oh, you'd think the Haraki Herald would have a story because they're all owned by the same out. So the next week, another big story came out with it added to. And it was like, oh, God, shrink, you know, because then it was out there for everybody to see. Well... My girl was working here and I was over in the refinery and I get a phone call and she said, oh, there's this guy here who wants to talk to you, big Maori guy. And he said, look, I just read the story about you trying to find out who did the murder. He said, he said I know who did it. And he said, and he's dead now. So he said, just get, lay off, just forget about it. And I said, well, have you told the police this? And he said, yep. He said, they know. He said, it was my nephew. He said, and he got killed a couple of weeks ago, a guy from Waihee, but he was, he was I think he got taken out, I don't know. But, but it was the, um, not the mongrel mob. Um, anyway, he's, this guy was talking, he said, they tried to nail it on my son, he said, but it wasn't my son, it was my nephew. And he said, and he's already dead, so over and out. From the moment I heard this lead, it bothered and confused me. Why would someone walk in off the street for no apparent reason and make this statement? There are three options. A. It's true, and for whatever reason, he decided to tell Viv. B. It's not true at all. Or C. It's a red herring, designed to deflect blame onto someone that's conveniently dead. For a long time, I struggled to find any information in regards to this lead. But a few weeks ago, I received an anonymous contact by someone who said only, I think the guy who did it passed away in 2017 by gunshot as well. Of course, I quickly replied with questions, but was never able to make contact again. Perhaps this person was scared to get more involved. I'll never know. I was also able to find a source close to the man who walked into Viv's store that day, who also believed through their source that Jordan's murderer was in fact dead, and I was pointed in the direction of a man by the name of Rory O'Neill. Rory died as a result of a single gunshot wound only months after being released from prison on unrelated charges in 2018. Initially, his death was investigated by police as a homicide. It was then, for reasons unknown, changed to a suicide. The reality is that Rory was a member of a large and notoriously dangerous gang in New Zealand, so I can see why people might be afraid to speak. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying Rory had any involvement in Jordan's murder. In fact, I think it's quite possible he had no involvement whatsoever. It's just as likely that his death is being used to cover for others who may have committed this crime. Sources I've spoken to have outlined that many of these people are connected in a vast web of the underworld, with tentacles reaching far afield. The man who walked into Viv's store that day passed away two years ago, so I can't speak to him, and I feel that he likely knew something key to this case. And as you can probably imagine, the people in this world adhere to a code of silence 
for fear of their lives, so someone else coming forward seems highly unlikely. But if you're out there listening to this podcast and you have information relating to Rory and any possible involvement in Jordan's death, you can contact us at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. When I spoke to Gareth recently, he said one thing that really reverberated with me, and that was that Jordan was so trusting. He genuinely believed that he had the respect of the locals and they would do him no harm. And it was this trust that would ultimately contribute to his murder. It's all right, leave it open. He said, you know, I know. I know people around here, it's all safe. And he kept on saying, oh, they wouldn't do that to me. They love me around here, I trust them. He says, oh, no, I've got respect in this town. I feed all the street kids, I look after everyone. And I said to him, no, mate, it's not like that. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Eight months ago, I released episode one of Guilt, with the goal of trying to shed some light on this unsolved case, and hopefully with your help, bring justice for Jordan, and perhaps give the family a why. I've gone over every major lead in this case, interviewed dozens and dozens of people, spent countless hours in my office and on the road, examining every possible angle, one by one. I've been able to eliminate the different theories and rumours. Now, I want to share with you my theory, based on all the evidence I've uncovered, as to what happened to Jordan Vidori in the early hours of June 18th, 2012, and why. So for the last time in Season 1 of Guilt, let's get into it. The following is speculation and nothing more. My theory on what may have taken place and why. No one has been charged for Jordan's murder, and as such, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. This depiction contains graphic violence. Discretion is advised. It's Sunday, June 17, 2012. Jordan Vidori is working in his Greek restaurant, Mykonos. It's a day much like any other early winter day. Clear skies. The kind you get when you know a frost is going to settle overnight. Only four months earlier, Paido had just won the award for New Zealand Town of the Year. That special, small-town rural vibe is part of the reason Jordan moved down from Auckland to start his pizza restaurant. He loves it here, and the town loves him for his vivacious personality and generous spirit. As it's a nice day, and Jordan hasn't opened the restaurant yet, he decides to give the back area behind his shop a clean-up. He swings his inside back gate closed and latches it. He turns back towards his shop. He notices his outside chest freezes, and momentarily, a thought crosses his mind. He wonders who's been stealing meat out of these freezers. The restaurant runs on slim margins, and he can't afford to keep replacing it. I did bring those young guys around here when I bought that fish a few weeks back. Nah, no way. They wouldn't do that to me. They respect me. Just at this moment, the neighbour, Rusty, calls out, Hi, pizza man. He waves and smiles. Jordan knows when she's staying, because he tells her to leave the gate open so they can get their cars in and out. There's nothing to worry about round here. A few moments later, Tatiana, one of Jordan's long-term employees, walks around the corner and into the shop to start work. 
What time you call this? He jokes. She laughs and heads inside to prep for service. She's early, as usual. The night proceeds as any other. The usual faces come and go, smiling kids happy to be getting one of Jordan's famous pizzas on a Sunday night. As the night winds down, Jordan sits out the back of his shop with Gareth, a longtime friend and chef that Jordan brought down from Auckland to help expand Mykonos from a pizza bar into a full Greek restaurant. They're known to have their arguments, but deep down, they're good friends. It's Gareth's birthday in four days, and Jordan's just a few days after that, so they decide they should probably have a couple quiet Heinekens before Gareth makes a couple pizzas and heads home. On his way out, Gareth notices the freezers and makes a comment, You really need to lock these bloody things. Jordan laughs and waves him off. Jordan swings the gate closed and latches it. He heads back inside where he makes a coffee and stands out the front of his shop as he usually does. It's quiet. Very quiet. Even for Pydor. As he heads back inside, a delivery truck drives past on its nightly run and sees him closing up. It's 10.30pm. Jordan makes himself a pizza and another coffee and heads upstairs to his apartment where he sits on his computer browsing Trade Me, his favourite pastime. As he sits at his computer, the windows slowly freeze up as a deep winter frost sets in. The night is deathly quiet. Then, a noise. Jordan looks at the time. It's 1.27am, later than he thought. Listening intently, he quietly shuts the computer down and grabs the keys for the back gate. He has a feeling, maybe tonight he will shut the back gate. He heads downstairs and notices movement in the back by the inside gate. There's someone there. Jordan runs to the back door and shouts at whoever's there to get out of here. It's dark, so he can't quite make out any faces, but someone shouts back at him as they back out into the courtyard, taunting him. Jordan's not one to back down, and no punk kids are going to come onto his property and speak to him like that. He walks out through the gate into the darkness, when something hard suddenly strikes him in the face, breaking his nose. He stumbles, but in a flash, his military training comes back to him. Reactively, he reaches out and grabs something, the barrel of a gun, the steel freezing cold in this wicked frost. The assailants try to wrest the gun from Jordan, but he doesn't let go. One of the assailants lashes at Jordan's arms with something he picked up from the back of Jordan's shop. Suddenly, the night is pierced with a single sharp crack of a gunshot. Jordan lets go of the barrel and the gun. The assailants pause momentarily in shock, then turn and run around the corner and out towards the street and into the night. Jordan feels a slight flash of pain, but his adrenaline is pumping and he chases them round the corner. He slows and stops, only now noticing the blood on his hands. He thinks of his children. Then night slowly fades to black. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
This is obviously a dramatized version of what I believe may have taken place. And I hope this episode has made it clear what I believe happened to Jordan and why. But I must reiterate that there are still many question marks that I just can't answer. Like why take a gun to a robbery? But sometimes a scenario that doesn't make sense just because it seems illogical to us isn't impossible. There are also details I wonder whether the police have checked. Was the hammer used in the armed robberies taken from Jordan's that morning? Was there a hammer missing from Jordan's workshop? What was the connection between Jordan's murder and the armed robberies? Were these the same young men robbing Jordan's freezers? Was Jordan's death an accident? The reality is that there are people out there right now, living in the community, quite possibly listening to this podcast right now, that know exactly what happened to Jordan and why. But unless one of these people comes forward, it's possible that we'll never know. However, that doesn't mean we'll stop trying. When I started this podcast, one of the first people I spoke to was Christos Fedori, Jordan's older brother. We spoke on the phone, but I could feel that Greek vivaciousness coming through. And I knew that before the end, I needed to meet him and his brother Nico. To me, it feels perfectly fitting to finish right back where I started. Definitely got the right time, eh? Yeah, 12 o'clock. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Hey, they're right. Nico. How are you? Nice to meet you. This is Ashley, my partner. Hi, hi, hi. Hello. See, so that's just recording the audio now, so. You do? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Remember, I have, we have very action, very strong action. That's fine. That's, that's fine. okay. <laughs> that, 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 that's okay. Today, we're meeting at Nico's Pizza in Oriwa. It's a horrible day outside, and at one point, the rain is literally coming in sideways. But Nico's shop just has that feeling of coziness and warmth. The walls are adorned with the typical Greek pictures of Santorini and Mykonos. We grab a seat at a nearby table. Christos sits opposite me, and Nico, behind the bar, makes pizzas while he listens. I'd asked Christos if he had any photos of Jordan he could bring along, and he passes me a paper bag which lovingly holds a framed picture inside. Nice to meet you. I spoke to you on the phone. This is Ashley. Hi. Right, that's the only one I can give you. That was the last yeah. we have. Okay. I mean, the last meeting. Yeah. Before. The night before he died. The night before he died. Oh, well, really? Wow. Oh, and that just was that was the night before. This the night before. Yes. I think it was. But it was uh, Monday night, and it was Tuesday. It was gone. And where was that taken? Right here. No, no, that's uh, no, no, that's Nikos the Takapuna. Takapuna. Yeah. 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 Okay. Great. Um, can we sit down somewhere? The picture shows Christos, Nico, and Jordan sitting at a table much like the one we're sitting at now. Looking back at the camera, choosing a shot of Uzo. This picture was taken the last time they ever saw Jordan alive. I asked Christos about their upbringing as a family, and he goes on to tell me about the difficult life they had growing up. Their mother passed away at the age of 33 due to leukemia, and as their father wasn't in the picture, they were sent off to an orphanage from a young age. He tells me about his mum's passing, and his fond memories of their time in the orphanage, 
For them, the kids became like an extended family. It's not the, it's been a very hard life for us, very hard since mum died. It's been a very hard life for us, very hard. So we, um, that's why we're looking after ourselves, you know, we know how to um, find a hard situation to get managed to do this sort of things, you know. That's why we've been so close together, because of the situation. Yes, it was about um, 33 years old, and she was, we, I was 11, it was 3, and further down, you know, it's, um, she passed for leukemia. And at the time, it was in, in the 60s, it wasn't the machinery to fix it up and all this sort of thing, so. Yeah, it was very hard uh, to learn your mother, that's what I said to a lot of them, I said, you, you, had, you have a mother, it's the only one. If he goes, you have nothing. You look after her to look after you. But I say you're very lucky you, you got your mother. Be proud of it and look after her. Because it's the only one. So, as I say, still, still now I'm 33, I still miss my mom. Still miss my mom. They look after you, the government, to the time you're ready to live, then you you know, you're on. If you want to stay longer, you can stay at university. They will finish the university, the government still will look after you. They were so orphanage. But not like here. And the orphanage in there is like a, a castle with the round walls on it. You can't see outside what's going on. The only time you used to go on the first one, we used to go only on Sunday out for three or four hours and then back again. But on the other orphanage, on the agriculture where I've been there, it was no freedom. There's no walls around. You used to do, it's like you're living on your own house. And, but we used to go to the fields, we walk, not buses, no tractors, no trucks. We used to walk, to go into the fields, to do the pruning, to do the animals, all of the pigs, bees, chickens, rabbits, everything is in there for you to learn. I used to do uh, silk as well. And um, it was freedom. You didn't worry about it. But when you go to the orphanage when you're 11 years old, you're missing your friends, you're missing your parents, your father or anything there, you take away from your home, and you worry about it for a while. But the kids, They've been there for a while. They know the, what are you, your feelings. So they come here and they com- comfort you and you know, come play with you and things like this. But your mind is to the time you get used to it. And after that, for a while, you think, that's it. It's my house. I have to live with it. And you go into school inside there. Every, everything is there. Yeah. Everything is there. Nothing's missing. It becomes a big family. Yes. Yeah. But you don't know what's going on outside. But everything has been trusted by the government, for the people that are working to looking after their kids. It's so refreshing to hear someone who's clearly had a tough childhood speak about the positives and not dwell on the negatives. Instead of blaming the world for his problems, Christos took the good and forged ahead. This ultimately resulted in Christos, Nico and Jordan working on cargo ships after their mandatory time in the Greek army. These ships took them all over the world, before Christos eventually met Heather, a Kiwi, and made his way to New Zealand, where he would ultimately bring both his younger brothers, Nico and Jordan. As we speak more about Jordan, Christos tells me that despite the 10 years, he still thinks about Jordan often, 
and three days ago he had a dream, and in this dream, he spoke to Jordan. Just a note, when he says Yuthani, this is the Greek pronunciation of Jordan. Yeah, about three days ago, just, um, I was dreaming about Yuthani. Oh, really? oh, yeah, yeah. It's um, <laughs> me and him, Yuthani and him, we, we used to, I used to have the Belmont pizza shop. We all walked together. And one, uh, you see, the brain, you know, is, is not there. But, and then I would start to push to find out if it's the real thing. And I feel it is there next to me. Yeah, and um, so we walked on together and I said to him, what are you doing here? I said, quite a few times, you know. And I said, what are you doing to him? You're not supposed to be here. But it was no upset, no, it was quite normal, mm-hmm. like, you know, like we're now. Mm-hmm. So, because we have a religion, a religion thing, it's orthodox. I have a, a candle at home, so I like that every Sunday for all the family, mother, father, and thing. And uh, the fourth day I saw him in my sleep, you know, it's um, always, if I go into the church, I always put a candle for everybody, you know. And, you know, it's not, um, it's been upset or angry or uh, things like this. It's just uh, like a normal, like now we're talking about. So I just told him about, you know, it's um we were working again together, I think. So I was, sometimes I used to cry in my sleep, you know. But, um, what would you, if you could say something to Jordan right now, what would you say? We miss you. That we miss him. And with that, it becomes too much for Christos, and he excuses himself from the table to walk down the back of the restaurant, where he busies himself chatting to a staff member. This moment really highlights the fact that these men, while very emotional inside, do not wear their hearts on their sleeve, likely a result of growing up the way they did. There's one thing I've always heard, and that's that Jordan made the most amazing pizzas. And it sucks I never got the opportunity to try one. But here, it's the next best thing. I make my way down into the kitchen and ask Nico if he can show me how to make one of their famous pizzas. Nico agrees, but Christos can't help leaning over with a cheeky grin and extending some of their famous hospitality. The famous yeah, okay, pizza? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, go. We'll go over there. Well, no, no, no. Tell you what. Yeah. We'll make a deal. Yeah. You come up to my boy. Yeah, and I will make you a picture. Yeah, but he's going to look at this one. No, I know. You will learn. You will learn from from the master. From the master, Christos grins, Nico smiles, and reaches out for a freshly rolled pizza base, and proceeds to pass on a little bit of this family secret to me. Oh, okay, sure. As I stand there with Christos by my side, telling me all the history of Greek food and who in their family made the best. And Nico demonstrating his magician-like skills building a pizza in front of me. For a moment, I'm transported back 10 years. I'm standing in Jordan's Mykonos. Diners happily chat over their food to the background sound of Greek music. And above it all, the unmistakable sound of the vivacious pizza man. Full of life and chatter. And I feel good that despite Jordan's passing, his spirit lives on through his brothers. 
And as for that pizza, well, you'll have to go to Nico's to find out for yourself. Guilt is written, produced, and edited by me, Ryan Wolf. The title track is Jukebox by Patrick Patrikios. Opinions of guests of this podcast are exactly that, and are not the opinions of the podcast itself. No one has ever been charged for Jordan's murder, and everyone is considered innocent until proven otherwise. You can find a photo of myself, Nico, and Christos, and other information related to this podcast on my Instagram page, RyanWolfNZ. I'd like to thank everyone that has contributed to this first season of Guilt and remind you that season two will be coming soon and features a brand new case. However, if there are any updates on Jordan's case, we'll release extra episodes as necessary. If you have any information related to the murder of Jordan Vidori, please contact the New Zealand Police anonymously via Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111 or you can email us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com thank you he's like I can't tell you to